say good afternoon. We're pressing full steam ahead into our uh, series in John, titled Superman HD. As an as a, as a avid comic fan, you can imagine um, a title like that has huge appeal. Um, but today is not talking about the virtues of Superman as he is in Clark Kent, but Superman in Jesus Christ. So, again, you know, the series, hopefully for those of you who have been here, needs no introduction. But for those who um, are maybe here for the first time, um, again, the HD is not a reference to high definition, but is actually a reference to the, the fact that Christ reveals himself as both human and divine. And that's how he is revealed. He is not revealed as a 50% human and a 50% divine person, but he is 100% both. And as such, he is... Um, and, and to some extent, this is, the, this, is, this is how John presents his gospel in a way that none of the other gospel writers do. You know, it is noted that John emphasizes the divinity of Christ in a way that no one else does. You know, so you might say in the contrast of all four Gospels that Matthew has a strong emphasis on the Messianic king. Mark has a strong emphasis on, on the Messiah as the, the servant of God. Luke has a strong emphasis of Christ the perfect man. But John, as Christ the divine. You know, but we are in John 8. So if you want to turn there soon, we shall read from there. And 31 to, oh, sorry, 8, 31 to 59. Thank you very much. Um, that could have been a bit awkward, isn't it? <laughs> having, having studied a, a chapter ahead. Um, but, you know, by way of intro, let's just, you know, let me just say that, you know, this is, there are many conversations in John and you know, to state the obvious, you know, we've all had conversations where they've gone pear-shaped at some point. You know, where you've begun is not where you, is not where you end up. And Jesus is no stranger to controversy in this sense. He has these conversations, and this is a great example of it. It's an extract from one of these conversations. And it ends up being riddled with controversy. Riddled with controversy because... Not because he just wants to be controversial, like we can tend to be in our conversations. But he's a controversial figure. He, there is nobody like him. And so therefore, when he comes, and like our conversations that go peer-shaped, our egos are very much involved. We want to impose our egos over the other person's argument. But what happens when the ultimate ego, the only true ego, actually is making a statement over somebody else? He is the only person who can make absolute ultimate statements. You can't win a conversation against Jesus. And so let's bear that in mind as we go and read through the text. I'm reading from the ESV. And from verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews 
who had believed in him, if you abide in my word and you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. You speak of what I have, what I, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would, do, you would be doing the works of Abraham that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if, you, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your, your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and a father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reasons why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. But you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say, to you, say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I, do not know him, but I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. 
Let's pray. Father, who is sufficient for these things, dear Lord God? Both to teach and to hear. Lord, you make us ready. Lord, Father, lest your spirit were here, Lord, we could do nothing. We could not have the faith to believe. We could not have the faith to respond. And I certainly would not have the ability to teach and speak your truth, Lord. Lord, I am, you know, as John would say, Lord, as uh, in the earlier chapters, Lord, I, I am not that truth, but I bear witness of that truth, Lord. And I pray as Christians today, Father, as I teach, Lord, and as we listen, that we would be response, responsive to the truth, dear Lord God, that only you are. And Lord, that this word embodies. I pray, Father, that you would um, invigorate our faith. Invigorate us, Lord, who may be shaken, Lord. That upon the hearing of the gospel, we would be, again, revived and renewed in our most holy faith, dear Lord God which again is a gift from you. Lord, help us to understand. Help us to, to cherish who Christ is in our own hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. Indeed, who is sufficient for these things? I want to kind of teach this in three major sections. It's probably very much similar in your own Bibles that there are three kind of major sections in here. Um, verse 31 to 38. Um, I want to deal with that section under the general title of The Truth Will Set You Free. Uh, the second major section, just for those, I mean, I guess more so for those who are taking notes, um, is 39 to 47. And I want to deal with the antithesis. And the final section, 49 to 59, the I am, existence itself. But starting with section 1, you know, verse 31, and I guess this is where we might find ourselves, um, throw ourselves right into the midst of the conversation. So note that Jesus is having a conversation with believers. Verse 31 highlights that these are believers. These are, quote-unquote, disciples. This is important because it actually ends up being very hostile. And we have to bear that in mind, that this is the hostility of those who actually say that they hear Jesus. They respond to Jesus. And so therefore, our hostility, whether it's quite external or internal, might actually be very similar to their own. The gospel can be offensive. In fact, by its very nature, is offensive. And that will be built up as we go further and further into the text. 31 also makes it clear from the outset that true discipleship is not determined by what you may believe today. In other words, as we would always say, is that, you know, we, we look at people and, I mean, if you've been a Christian for a minute, especially those from a more kind of Pentecostal background, you might have heard the term of backsliding. You know, and we've and we struggled with the whole idea of what do we make of the whole idea of someone backslides, you know, someone makes a profession and you know, what do we do of that? Do they become unsaved? But Jesus makes the whole idea that the, the concept, the true aspect of discipleship is perseverance. 
The true test of discipleship is not what one says today. (laughs) But discipleship is really determined by the longevity and the perseverance to the very end. The spirit if the spirit is truly present within, the, within the, the believer, the spirit enables you to persevere with strength that you do not actually have yourself. And I guess to some extent I reveal um, my own context of the theology which I believe, which is true to I believe what the Bible teaches us, that the spirit sustains us. We cannot sustain ourselves. Verse 32 builds this, and you know, we must note that the, the truth shall set you free does not mean that truth will make you autonomous. You know, again, probably alluding to some, some older beliefs, the whole idea of being a king's kid is that we are now actually free to kind of rule and reign, and you know, the, you know, the you know, Deuteronomy 28 aspect of I'm the head and not the tail. You know, I'll speak to this, claim wealth and, you know, the best quality of life. This is not what Jesus is talking about when he says the truth shall make, shall make you free and you will be free indeed. The only freedom God can actually offer you is the freedom to live in his world the way he created it. Free fall. That's the only freedom God gives you. It's not the freedom to live as we will, but the freedom to live consistent with the way that he has made the world before the fall. And this aspect of the fall will come up. Why is this important? And this is, again, alluding to our second section of the antithesis, which is that we are we are only ever going to be slaves in this life. Some versions will tidy it up and call it servants. <laughs> but the reality is, is that it really means slaves. To be under a master. And it says you can only be a slave to righteousness or a slave to unrighteousness. Only two decisions. Verse 33, their response. And this is where it gets heated, doesn't it? Their response can be easily misunderstood to mean that they viewed themselves as free people. But this... You know, again, maybe we have to dig into the history of the Israelites a little bit more of the of of this particular period to probably understand what they mean. Because when they say we have never been enslaved, obviously the Israelites have had a history of being enslaved from the Egyptians right until this present time with the Romans. And this is not to allude to the Assyrians, the Babylonians the Syrians, the Greeks, who had all at some point ruled over Israel. And even at this present time, they were enslaved. They were not free people. But that's not what they're alluding to. And again, it is important to say, to understand some of the history of what 
as they would say, Second Temple Judaism taught. They believed that this, as descendants of Abraham, they were actually free from unrighteousness. They believed that they were good people. They believed that they didn't need to be set free from the bondage of unrighteousness. They were okay. So they took offense at the whole idea of, he will make me free. And this is where the tension starts to build as well, as we would, again, as we go a little bit further, of them only really wanting a political messiah. Someone who would actually come and just basically, um, you know, get rid of the Romans and actually set up a kingdom that would be, um, allow them to practice freely their righteousness. The disciples also felt that this was what Jesus was about. They thought that he would come and bring them the kingdom. Hence, some of the debates, as the gospel reveals, is who will be sitting on Jesus' left side and his right side and whatnot, was all about when he comes, will I be like a part of the new David's kingdom, like one of his mighty men? You might even perceive that Peter and his handiness of a sword might have favoured himself as one of these mighty men of David. But he was not a political messiah, or not merely a political messiah. Verse 44, again, he builds this again, and the argument now comes where Jesus now retorts, and he says that they who practice sin should know that they are slaves to it. That, in a sense, the sacrificial system that the Jews had and practiced did not make a sin-free zone. In other words, this is not making everything all right. And to kind of capitalize and maybe camp here a little bit and, and kind of unpack Second Temple Judaism and say, well, what does this have to do with us today? Again, Jesus is talking to quote-unquote disciples. Is that we live in a culture, again, that, some, that likes to say that we are good people. That humanity at its um, core is good we witness this all the time. I mean, I was watching an advert yesterday and it was emphasised in the whole idea of humankind. And it was interesting that they emphasised that humanity is kind. I think we are a war away from that situation being raised. You know, um, you know post-Second World War, people never fought this way. But we've had a long, long time of seemingly peace. But there are places in the world where 
um, you couldn't necessarily preach human is, humanity is kind. Try preach that gospel in Syria right now. But we, we are preoccupied culturally with this whole idea that we are inherently good. We are a society that believes that our greatest enemy is actually external. Given the right circumstances, the right conditions, we would never do anything really wrong. We are, we are as it were, great reactionaries. I'm a product of my environment. I'm just keeping it real, as to kind of call a hip-hop phrase. That you know, I'm just talking about life on the streets, and this is just how it is. <laughs> and that's what we believe. Is that you know, given better conditions, you know, and I didn't have to live in a project, that everybody will be fine. You know, I mean, to go kind of camp on this kind of whole idea of how rap misconstrues this is that you know you find that when these guys make millions of pounds and millions of dollars or whatever it is they pretty much live a ghetto life within the suburbs <laughs> you know the, you know the pimped out mobile and you know living like pretty much they would in the ghetto but just in a place that worth is worth a lot more and so it's 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 interesting that you 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 this whole idea of you remove me from the from a situation that's uh, from the situation that's actually harming me, and actually I would be a better person. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> situations uh, would dictate differently. But this is the problem, and. As we will discuss a little bit more, as I would kind of hopefully unpack, and hopefully you discuss in your hearts, that the type of saviour you're looking for has to be the kind of saviour that actually saves you from yourself. Verse 35. Jesus now explains this by saying that, by unpacks this whole idea of what type of saviour he is, because he now, John's gospel emphasises him as the son. He is not just any kind of son, he is the true son. And again, we have to hear this section out very clearly. He now describes himself as the son because he describes the whole idea of being in creation, being in the world, is that when you compare it to a household, and obviously easier to, be, to do it in those particular times because we don't necessarily have quote-unquote servants. But we might make, look at the whole idea of a household having maybe an au pair or someone who comes in and helps to clean or whatever and that. When you look at the contrast between your child and maybe the au pair, the real relationship within that household is between the parent, or as in Jesus' case, the father and the child. The au pair inherits nothing. The au pair has no real relationship with the father other than they are a servant within their household. And that's what Jesus is emphasizing, the whole idea of legacy. We, again, as servants of Christ, as servants and creatures, 
have no legacy that directly links us to God. This is why it's important that Christ is revealed as Son. And he is building towards something here by saying and giving this illustration. The Son is the only one who inherits. He says in verse 36, If however the son should release the slave, they will be drawn into a relationship with the father. And we can see that in the old um, ancient custom, we see this in the whole uh, the, the role of adoption. A slave could be adopted to be a son, to be an heir. But within the old ancient custom, as far as I'm, I'm aware, this was done where the actual father or the ruler of the household didn't actually have a genuine heir. We see this actually with Abraham, where when he didn't have a son, said, that, said to God, I only have a chief servant who I will actually make my heir. I actually don't have a genuine heir to pass down my, my inheritance to, my wealth. And so... In the absence of a son, they would do this. But when there is a son, there is no need to actually have somebody come along and be a joint heir. This is the grace of God. He now has adopted us. You know, so one of the, one of the myths that tend to float around there is that we're all children of God. And this is somehow related to this whole idea that we're all good. If we listen to John's gospel clearly and carefully, Jesus is the only son. As we heard last week, to be the son was to be made equal to God. An eternal God cannot be divided. Whoever is God is God. And this is actually what Scripture teaches us throughout. This is what Paul unpacks. If we, if we note Romans 8, 15, Galatians 4, 5, Ephesians 1, 5. Again, they talk about the whole idea of, you know, reading from Romans 8, 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Galatians 4, 5, so that we might redeem those who are under the law, that they might receive the adoption as sons. Ephesians 1, 5, he predestined us to adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. We have no genuine link to God through, other than through Christ. This is why he is the way. There is no link through Muhammad, there is no link through Gandhi, there is no link through anybody other than Christ. We are merely creatures apart from Christ. And this is what Jesus is explaining to his disciples. You are not children of God. 
Second Temple Judaism believed that they were genuinely children of God because they were descendants of Abraham. Thirty-seven and thirty-eight. This misunderstanding of the Jews was that they thought that being related to Abraham was their connection to God. Here we must assert that God has no grandchildren. And this is what they believed. You know, I remember, I remember a number of years ago, and again, um, that kind of noticing something about British society that um, most people when there was a kind of a, a gap on an application form for, for religion, would say Christianity, even though they had no direct link to going to church or being a part of it. And just something I just realized that people wrote Christianity because it was a cultural statement. We're in a Christian country, aren't we? Well, I guess I'm Christian. We cannot inherit, inherit our parents' faith. We cannot inherit our grandparents' faith. It was true for the patriarchs as it is true for us now. If you look back at Genesis, God became the God of Abraham, but then he had to have an encounter with Isaac for him to become the God of Isaac. Then he had to have an encounter with Jacob, in order for him to become the God of Jacob. We did not inherit, he did not inherit a legacy aside from them actually having to do the works of righteousness that they needed to do in their own lifetime. We cannot inherit a Christian culture, a Christian standing. If we look back to John 3, again in the same context, Jesus has already revealed to us the fact that spiritual rebirth leads to salvation, not physical birth. If it was true for the Jews, how much more so would it be true for us who are non-Jews? You need to be born again. You need to actually be spiritually reborn in Christ. That is how we inherit the gospel. As Genesis fifteen six reveals, and much of the you know the, um, Romans four, Galatians obviously uh, deals with the subject of how was Abraham made righteous. And 15, Genesis 15.6 reveals this and says, Then he believed in the Lord and he, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. He believed that God was good. He believed that God was the keeper of his promises. He believed that God was faithful. And then God blessed that and said, Abraham, you are now mine. No other way to be saved both old and new. And this is the work of Abraham. He believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. 
But this leads us into our second section, the antithesis. I mean, what does the antithesis mean? Um, it just basically means that there are two ways, two extremes. And we like to believe that there is kind of, um, as we could say, like grey areas. Um, one of the, the, the <laughs> I guess, the claims against fundamental Christianity or just true Christianity is that it's, it's too black and white. Life is full of grey areas. We think of all these little scenarios where, well, what happens? You know, we, you know, the guy in the middle of nowhere, you know, never hears the gospel, you know, grey area. No, it's not a grey area. <laughs> but we think of these little scenarios to try and think that, well, there are situations where people are genuinely victims. Oh, it's just not like that. You know, you know you, you're too black and white. Jesus teaches the antithesis. He teaches that basically you are children of the devil or you're children of God. There is nobody in this kind of little neutral zone, you know, and, you know, kind of wading their way through and, you know, God is not, you know, putting the axe down quite yet. Kind of winks and says, ah, it's all right. You just didn't have a best night, you know, not, you know, not enough missionaries. It's Okay. But let me, let me introduce the antithesis. I mean, I, I, I think Augustine kind of sums this up quite well. And I want to just read a, a short excerpt from his City of God book. Um, if you happen to own a copy, you can go and look at it. It's in book 14, chapter 28. And he says this, We see that the, the two cities were created by two kinds of love. The earthly city was created by self-love, reaching to the point of contempt for God. The heavenly city, by the love of God, carried as far as contempt for self. Augustine sums up this whole idea, and and this is why it relates to our text here, is that the the love of God and the love of self are kind of the antithesis of two types of people that live in the world. And rather than say it's you know the, 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 you know it's the people that kind of do this, it's basically it's like it's whether love is other person centric or whether love is self centric. That's how he sums it up, and I think this is good. That's why I'm quoting it. He sums it about with where does your love lie? Coupling that with Genesis fifteen six, Abraham loved God more than he loved himself. Who would be willing to kill their son or their child only because God told them to? I know we think of the heinousness of that, but it's the whole idea that for him, that was the proof that he loved God more than he loved himself. Where is your love centered? And that, I believe, is, is, a, is a good place to start to develop where we stand with God and what type of kingdom and what kingdom we are a part of. As I've already alluded to before, that we live in a time when the, fall, where the belief in a fallen humanity is actually falling on deaf ears.
we no longer believe in a pure evil or, as it were, a devil. You know, we even come to the point where even perpetrators of crimes are looked upon as victims. In some instances, it's obviously true. But this is always true. Even with children, we tend to think that there is a loss of innocence at some point. And not because they've entered or been able to be, have been witness to the kind of greater adult world. But we believe that there's a kind of a, a loss of sinless purity. That the child has, as it were, has, has been marred. Again, this all goes back to the whole idea of being reactionaries, that if mankind is really actually quite good, then actually there's a point where external circumstances changes that. The Bible doesn't teach that. It says, we do not become sinners because we commit sins. We commit sins because we are sinners. We are doing what what is in our nature to do. What we believe about the fall matters because we believe what we believe will determine whether Jesus is Saviour with a capital S and a definite article or with a little s and an indefinite article. Let me unpack that a little bit. If we, don't, if, if we believe and if we buy into this whole idea that society is ultimately good and that certain things happen around us that make us into bad people, then in a sense, even when you sit before the gospel, as these Jews who think that they're all right do, we, we, we tend to look at Jesus as a saviour with a small s and an indefinite article. He is a saviour. As I said, like Muhammad or like Gandhi or like, you know, Guru Nanak or whatever you want to kind of refer to. We actually look at God with a small s. He is one of many ways in which we can actually come and become a better society. Or you can follow good Christian theology and true Christian theology and actually say that he is actually saviour with a big s. And a definite article. He is the saviour. The only one. That's what this means. What we believe about the fall will determine what type of saviour we seek. Verses 39 to 43. Looking back to the first section and allowing the conversation, he allows the conversation to build and he highlights it is not enough. And, 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 and again, it is not enough, he says to them, to be genetically connected to Abraham. And he now builds on this whole idea of the son theology, of him being the true son, by saying that sons emulate their fathers. I have to admit that I have found in my life that um, my father, my dad, 
has had a huge impact on the way I have matured. In despite all my efforts to avoid it. And I'll be honest, I've got to have to be honest with you. My dad was a force to be reckoned with in many ways. He's a puppy now, but he's uh, growing up was unique. Um, my, my friends were afraid of my dad. You know, I need to say we didn't have any birthday parties at my house. But I find myself being more connected to my dad by the fact that I actually emulate him. More than the statement that I am your dad, or he sends me a birthday card with, you know, uh, happy birthday, daughter, which he once did. <laughs> he, my dad don't pick out cards, you know. It's just, that one will do. And so... Um, he doesn't even send me cards now, because it's like, you know what, don't even bother. <laughs> but it's not the fact that he says that I am a dad. It's the fact that I actually, I now witness myself realizing that I'm more like, even down to the fact that I'm wearing this plaid shirt. <laughs> it's something that he would do. I went to see him the other day, and again, he, 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 he smiled at me when he pointed to my um, camouflage sort shorts and pointed to his <laughs> camouflage shorts and said, hey. And he smiled. And I, 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 have to, I have to... I am like my dad. And this is what Jesus is saying. I am like God. I am... I am like my father. And he says, if your, if your connection to Abraham was really, genuinely, of that as a father, then why are you not doing the things that Abraham did? It's, do, do you see what I mean when I say that it's not enough to say I have an ancestry that connects me to Abraham? If I am not like Abraham, then in a sense... I find myself a bit more confused. If I, like I said, if I didn't have any traits that were like my dad right now, I would probably be more confused about whether he was my dad. People will look and say, you don't even look like him. And this is exactly what he's saying. He said, you know, and, and in this age of where people, where people will question their paternity of their of, of their, of their, of their their own paternity, we have to say that sometimes what tends to be the ultimate answer is the proof that exists within our own lives, within our own inner witness about, actually, am I like the person who claims to be my parent? They were not like Abraham. No doubt they might have pilled. Um, again, for your note, I'm not going to read them. Um, Deuteronomy 14, 1 and 14, 1 to 2. Jeremiah 31 and 20. Both kind of highlight, seem to give this highlight that Jews are, are God's children. But this is um, not necessarily the, 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 the meaning of when God says, you are my children. As I said, there is only one true son. 
verse 44. This drives, you know, so Jesus drives this home by now saying that actually your father is the devil. And this is where the world leaves us. This is where we, uh, uh, you know, we have nothing to do with this whole black and white mentality of Christianity because you're saying that there is, you believe in a pure evil. You believe in a, you know, a, a man with a you know, red skin and a tail and pitchfork. You know? We don't believe in that anymore. And, and, I, and, I, and I, I have to say that our theology, and that is whatever we believe about God in relation to ourselves, has to be rooted in Genesis 1 to 3. And, and, I, and I make that statement clear. I mean, uh, and it's, I've, it's something I've held in my heart for a number of years. Hence, being a, a, a big proponent of, of, of trying to teach the Old Testament. Because where you relate to Genesis 1 3, if you, if, if you get Genesis 1 to 3 wrong, you will have a completely different perspective on Christianity. And no doubt, with all the different denominations out there, this is exactly what's happened. There's a different take on what Genesis 1 to 3 means. If, for example, you have this belief that there is a quote-unquote, a divine spark left after the fall. That, in a sense, man was left with his reason and that his reason wasn't fallen, that he could, in a sense, rationally make God faithful statements. Then, essentially, you didn't really believe in the fall. You believed that, in a sense, where I sit within my heart, I could actually work my way back to God. If I hear enough teaching, if I get enough education, again, it's the whole idea of if I get the right external situations happening, if a missionary comes and preaches the gospel to me, then somehow I will, I will actually be able to make a rational decision and actually accept the fact that God made the world and, and that I am his creature and that I am his son and whatnot. As noble as it might sound, it will ultimately lead to a saviour with a small s. You will not believe that you truly need to be saved from yourself because your rational mind actually saves you to some extent. That little divine spark is actually what needs to be ignited to bring us back to God. I don't think Jesus teaches in this conversation here that people need a little bit of help. I believe he teaches the fact that they are of the devil because he wants them to understand the reality of humanity. I can teach Genesis 1 to 3 and what it means from this chapter because this is what Jesus says about what Genesis 1 to 3 means. The fall is complete. You are actually children of the devil. Spiritually so, not physically, spiritually so.
This is why Jesus was saying, this is why Jesus could never fulfill their expectations of a political Messiah. Because their need for salvation was, was quite thorough. Again, you needed more than a Gandhi. Jesus is not just another good teacher. Verses 45 to 47, again, he, Jesus has to now say that um, he is the standard. There is no higher standard to appeal to. And when you're talking about issues of truth, Jesus can only refer to himself. There is no higher authority in which he can now appeal to to say, well, this is, this, this is the person that bears witness to me because he is equal to God. But again, one of, the, one, of the, one, of the, one of the things that the Gospels always point us to is that he qualifies this by saying that he is without sin. And we have to take that seriously. The Gospels, attest, the gospels all attest, attest that he is a sinless man. And this is established not just by the apostles write in, but as they write saying that the Sanhedrin and even Pilate himself, the highest authority of the land at that time, both attested to the fact that he was sinless. He was not wrong in the things that he had actually been charged with. But the Jews compelled them to kill him anyway. When you're acquitted, but then still actually have to be sentenced to death, that's a huge tragedy. But this is the reality of who Christ is. He was sinless and he testifies to that himself in John's own account here. The final section, the I am and again, my, as the title alludes to today, the unmentionable, you know. So a, a, a brief intro to the whole idea of the I am statement, which this section will end with, is that Jews never mentioned it. We say Adonai. They say, you know, they say Adonai. Rather than whenever you see Yahweh in the text, they will say Adonai. Lord. They believed that God's name was so holy they could, not, they could not even say it. It was unmentionable. If you, you might say that this particular I am statement is the ultimate I am statement of John. I am the resurrection and life. I am the way. I am the door. I am the bread of life. I am the light. I am is the ultimate attestation to God. It's a tricky section. But I think simply, what this section teaches is that we're in a war of, you know, Jesus is in a war of ideas with these Jews and he appeals to the highest, who appeal, and they make their appeal to the highest Jewish standard of Abraham. So Jesus is taking up this whole idea of, I am appealing to Abraham for my Jewishness, 
for the true root of righteousness. But Jesus counters this false belief that the Jews' righteousness came from Abraham because he is now actually the source of Abraham's righteousness. He's cutting them off from their appeal to Abraham to say that Abraham had to trust in me. I am the true Jew. Right here, I'm thinking about Genesis 17.1. Write that in your notes if you need to. But 17.1, go before me and be perfect, he said to Abraham. Who could do that? Who? It's almost like God is speaking to him and speaking right into Abraham to the seed that would be Christ and saying, you be perfect. You be the true Jew. Jesus is the true Jew. He's just said it in the last section that he is the one who is perfect, who is sinless. He is the one who has walked before God perfectly. Not Abraham. He is the fulfillment of Abraham's promise. If they need to establish their righteous credentials, they needed to do it through him and not through Abraham. Verse 48, Jesus, the accusation comes back to them that he is a Samaritan. Um, Again, um, like all misunderstandings, um, you you kind of, you know, the the history of this is basically that whenever there was heterodoxy, uh, things that were kind of erroneous from the Jewish understanding, they pretty much said "That's, that's just a Samaritan way of thinking. Samaritans think that way. They're the masters of heterodoxy. They're the ones who bring up these erroneous doctrines to try and counter the Jewish claim. And this is what the Samaritans actually did in historical sense. If we look back to John 3 in, 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 in Jesus' confrontation with the woman at the well, it's the same thing he had to do. He had to have a theological debate and correct Samaritan misconceptions. And this is all rooted back to the sins of Jeroboam who wanted to take away worship, turn away when the kingdom, the kingdom was divided into the northern southern kingdom and Jerusalem was the place of worship, which laid in Judean territory, Jeroboam, to conceal power, had to create a rival religion. If you look back in the Old Testament, he said, for this reason, he said that if people go back to Jerusalem and worship there, Yahweh there, then he said that their hearts will turn away and I might lose my kingdom. And so this whole idea of Samaritan heterodoxy was a real issue. They had these rival opinions to say, to drive people away from God, to drive people away from the temple. And that's what they're accusing him of. You are a Samaritan. And that's, their, that's what they're saying to him. The truth is is that Jesus will not be reduced to northern heterodoxy and neither will he be reduced to southern self-righteousness. He is not batting from that. He is talking about truth 
that, not, um, that doesn't emulate and is not part of the temple system as it was then. He is talking about the true temple that exists within heaven. That's the truth he's bringing. Not the gospel that has been reshaped to fit the self-righteous Jews of this time. He is now bringing back, and as you remember, Moses never made a real temple. He made a copy of that which was in heaven. This is truth that is born of heaven. Verse 49, and he says, them claiming he has a demon as well is also linked to this whole idea of him making blasphemous claims. You can only speak this fire devil. So they're now reversing this whole idea of him calling them devils by saying, well, you're a demon yourself. You can't, you can't make these kind of bold statements. But the appeal to heaven and the appeal to the temple of heaven and to God himself is to understand that God's glory is the only glory that Jesus is seeking. There's a lot to be said here, but Needless to say, we live in a culture that, again, likes the whole idea of glory. And there are false rivals to glory. You know, scoring the winning goal in the World Cup final might be seen as a path to glory. Paved with glory. Imagine the stadium. You've scored the winning goal. Your nation's love and respect. The other nation's fear of you. That kind of glory is the kind of glory we seek. That comes from our peers. Winning X Factor. The glory of winning and coming first. Being chosen by the nation. These are all allusions to glory. True glory is eternal. It's the glory that never diminishes. They're kinds of glory, but they're not the real glory. Again, I'm going to allude to it, but I'm not going to read from it. But if you look back to Luke 10, 17 to 20, you'll see that the the disciples come back. And again, they're they're, they're glorying in the whole idea or rejoicing in the whole idea that the demons are running from them. And the demons are, are being set free. And that obviously, no doubt, this makes them a name for them amongst the people. But Jesus tells them, don't glory in that. Rejoice in that. Rejoice in the fact that your name is written in heaven. The only glory that is eternal can come from the only eternal being. Glory in the fact that God knows who you are. Glory that lasts. Are we seeking the glory that lasts? Are we seeking a name where our names will never be forgotten? You know, even probably for the most hardened football fan, I, you know, to kind of recall who scored the winning goal 80 years ago in the World Cup might be a push. But it's just to allude to you that even in the space of a few decades... People's names fade. Whose once were shouted. 
not just from the terraces, but from papers and from, from governments. People's names get forgotten. Sometimes they go from fame to infamy. The past star that's now fallen, you know, think Jimmy Savile. Think Rolf Harris in recent issues. Now infamy. But they go on and they misunderstand Jesus because Jesus says that I will give, you will never see death. You believe in me, you will never see death. And again, this conversation is that they, they take this too literally. And they say, what do you mean? Again, they appeal to, to Abraham. Abraham is the greatest Jew that's ever lived. And look, he died. The prophets died. Who are you? Who do you think you are? Again, um, Jesus is not saying that they will never die. You need to dig a little bit deeper. We need to think thief on the cross. Luke 23, 43. Jesus is promising that the sting of death is gone through him. The thief on the cross says, he says to the thief, this day you'll be with me in paradise. He is saying that the kingdom will preserve you from the death that would basically be you resigned to Sheol. We die and we are present with the Lord. That's why we say, death, where is your sting? That's why Paul can testify in Philippians that to die is, is gain. What are you going to do to me? You send me to the Lord. This very moment. What can you do? No doubt many a martyr has had that same thing in their heart. Death, where is your sting? Do we believe that? Jesus, again, in verse 34, 44, um, 30, 54 and 55, he responds to them about the whole idea of glory coming from God. These Jews claim that God is their father, but they do not really know God as their father. So it's no surprise that they do not acknowledge Jesus. Can't respond to Jesus. If we follow the argument, they can't follow Jesus because they are actually the father. Their father is the devil. And at every point, he is picking every truth. As we see in the parable of the soils, every single truth is being picked apart and being replaced with his own lies. But this appealing to God for glory culminates in verse 56 and 58. 58, with the whole idea of the whole I am statement. This is probably one of the one places where they haven't actually misunderstood him. This is the one place where probably Jesus is actually being literal. He now tells them, I am. What a contrast from verse 31, isn't it? That introduces his disciples. He reveals himself as God. And now they want to stone him. 
Have we ever been angry like at God like that? Has the test of discipleship put you in that position where you are now going to say, I ain't, this is not me. I don't believe that. I ain't no son of the devil. Where does your discipleship stand? Let me end on this. Sorry for keeping you over. 59. Jesus leaves the temple. Again, you might say, as in the days of the Babylonian captivity, the glory has departed from the temple. Jesus leaves the temple. In history for the last time, The glory has departed. The music team, you can now prepare to conclude. Come up. But I want to. I want you to again take the whole idea of. I, I, I want us to take the context of verse thirty-one as we kind of wind up in this service, and 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 and, and for our own private meditation. Consider the context of verse 31. This is what Jesus says to his disciples. This is hard teaching. These are those hard conversations you can only have with people that you're close to. And we need to figure out in our own lives whether we believe Jesus too. In his own terms. We need to, believe, need to figure out whether we believe that his sonship is the only sonship we have to rely upon. We need to figure out whether, whether we are so in need of him that there is actually nothing of ourselves that we can do. We need to figure out whether today or for much of our Christian life or whether for this moment in our Christian life, whether we've actually only been seeking a saviour with a small s, somebody kind of get us over this, this bump in the road in our lives. My unemployment, my bad relationship. My physical difficulties. Have we, looked at, have we actually looked for someone to save us to the utmost? These are questions that I think the text wants us to answer in ourselves. Let's pray. Saviour of the world, be the light of our lives today. Let us deny all false claims that we make to be our own light, our own witness, our own source of truth, Lord. Let's come to a point, Father, where we, we, we humbly accept the revelation that needs to elude, illuminate our lives. Let's come to the reality that you are the only way, the only door in which I can actually claim a true inheritance to the God of this world. Let me deny all false claims that I would make to my own ego, 
and submit to the I am, the only true ego, the only true existing thing, an existing person, the true personality that's the creator of all things. Let me find my identity in that true I am. Let me, again, not seek the glory that comes merely from this world. But let me try to seek and let me endeavor as the Spirit gives us strength to seek true existence and true personality in the true I am. Father, forgive us where even in our sincerity we have made the mistake of, 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 of reducing you to a saviour of a smallness, the God of my problems but little else. Forgive us, Lord, for seeking our own glory. Forgive us, Lord, because we need you. Give us strength to believe, Lord. Give us strength to to take on this revelation. Give us strength to ask the hard questions in our own lives and to submit humbly to them. You are the God who forgives. You are the God who is gracious. Establish us there, Lord God, in your kingdom today. For your own sake, Lord, for your own glory. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.